Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. I'll lead us in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. The way I look at that prayer, what I just did was I asked to be become even more fatalistic. So, um, a lot of things I can't change. I cannot change global warming or global, global cooling, whichever it is that we're having. I can't change the uh, national election results. I can't change what's going on in Syria or Egypt. I can only change what's going on in my brain. And I can't change very much of that. <clears throat> but I have learned how to control a few things up there. And that's what I want to share with you today. First, I want to give my life story, my journey through the wonderland of lust and uh, the disaster of lust and uh, some other wonderlands, too. I'm 71 years old. I still work. I work full time. I have a job at home. I work in a home office. I'm a software developer and uh, have a computer in front of me all day long attached to the Internet. No, I don't surf the Internet for porn. Uh, I'm not tempted to do that. My boss is uh, 500 miles away in Virginia, and my computer that I talk to, my, that my computer talks to, is in Florida. That's even farther. So I'm on my own <clears throat> a lot. When I was about 15 years old, 15 and a half, I bought my first beer at a drive-through restaurant in North Carolina, and that that year, that was 1959 or 60, I guess, the minimum drinking age was 16. I'm sorry, 18. So I, I got in a car with a buddy of mine who was probably only 16, and he was driving, and we went to the drive through uh, hamburger and beer place, and I screwed up all my courage and ordered a 16-ounce can of Bud. And the car car boy or whatever they call him, wrote it down. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> that was easy. So here comes this can of beer with a um, cup on top and hands it to me. It's ice cold. Oh, that, mm, that's pretty cold. So then I take the cup off. This is my first beer. And I know I had to do this in order to be a man. So I start pouring the beer in there and it's foaming. 
And I looked at that foam and I thought, wow, that looks like a specimen <laughs> of urine. <laughs> Kept pouring, uh, got full, sniffed it. It smells like a specimen. <laughs> I don't know. I have to drink this thing, though. I want to be a man. So I took a small sip. Oh, that tasted pretty good. <laughs> and uh, got drinking a lot. More and more beer over the years and wine and then alcohol, uh, whiskey. And I quit drinking six years, about six and a half years ago. That got out of control. But somewhere around the same time, I got into uh, uh, fantasizing and masturbation, pu puberty and so on. I was in high school at that time. I was very shy, shy around girls, but I was not shy about masturbating in front of an open window. And I turned into an indecent exposure expert fairly quickly. As soon as I got old enough to drive, I would drive around my hometown naked, masturbating, look, looking for a girl walking down the sidewalk. That kept up for many, many years. When I got to college, I uh, got a little bit more mature, and I thought I fell in love with this girl from my hometown. Her family was very wealthy, and she was attractive and young, and we had a few things in common. I'd had four or five dates with her. And then one night, I made the terrible mistake of trying to kiss her goodnight at her front door of her house. And she said, she backed up, you do that again, there won't be any more dates. And I didn't think about that very uh, rationally. I didn't think about what were my options. I just reacted. And I got to where I resented that. I resented her. I began to resent all women, even though I, I really liked looking at them. I know there were plenty of other choices I could have made. I could have changed my behavior, uh, apologized. I didn't do that. Headstrong. So um, about a year later, after I had gotten beard up pretty well on my college campus, I went around one night and committed lots of vandalism. I was caught, kicked out of college, uh, did about $10,000 worth of damage in a fire on campus. I uh, was charged with five felonies and pled guilty. I had a lot of character reference letters for the, for the trial and sentenced to three to five years in prison, but suspended on probation for five years, thankfully. And after four years, I was let off of probation a year early because I'd been such a model probationer. The judge ordered that I not drink also during my five years of probation. Well, then I, uh, about the time I got on probation uh, and kicked out of college, I suffered a lot of, uh, I guess, depressing, depressing uh, feelings and I uh, thought all my friends had left me. I called that same girl up one night for a date and as soon as she heard my voice on the phone, she said, oh, it's you. <laughs> well, that didn't make me feel very good either. So I was feeling very sorry for myself, uh, introspective or, or terrible. And then one night, uh, in fact, it was New Year's Eve, late at night, I surfing the radio, driving around. I heard a radio preacher talking about uh, the end of the world and the apocalypse and how Europe, this was 1965 now. 
uh, all this Bible prophecy and some, something that he said struck a nerve in me. So I wrote in to that station for some literature and within about a year I had gotten myself baptized into this fundamentalist Christian church that believed literally in all the things in the Bible and believed literally in all the prophecies and, and turned out later I realized it was a cult but I didn't know that I thought it was uh, something that I was supposed to do I thought I was being called by God to be in this church and to have a part in God's great end time work of warning the world that the end is near and also making heavy donations to this particular church so uh, I stayed in that thing for 30 years. But they did emphasize uh, keeping the commandments. And one of the things that I was told is, believed, was I was not supposed to masturbate. So I quit masturbating. And I used to do that a lot. That was a lot of fun. So I did that for about seven years. I quit masturbating. During that time, I got married, had a child. And then I began slipping. So I started masturbating again, driving around naked, and all that stuff. I stayed in that church for a total of 30 years. And over those 30 years, I became more and more lustful, aggressive with my acting out. I, went on, I began going on business trips for my, uh, my computer job, drinking a lot on these trips, and uh, watching porn movies in the hotel room and then masturbating to the porn movies and then then one night while really really drunk I got up enough courage to call the hooker to come to my room and then a few months later I had another uh, business trip same thing call the hooker three or four more of these trips I found I didn't need to be completely drunk anymore to call a hooker in fact uh, quite sober so I got used to that but there were still a lot of things that I would not let myself do. And uh, I ended up doing them, too, before I got into recovery. But uh, let's see here. Had three more children. And then in 1996, I went on a business trip. And I had dinner one night with a woman that I had met before at one of these trips. And we just had dinner. We talked. And I wasn't especially... Uh, lusting after her she told me during the dinner that she had recently gotten divorced and so then we parted our ways I went back to my room and a few more hours later I went to bed but I couldn't I started thinking about that woman again before I could get to sleep that night I had begun a full-blown obsession over this woman she lived 600 miles away from where I did and so I found several ways that I could find to create a business trip to her hometown. And then I had dinner with her again on one of these business trips. And uh, that didn't help my obsession anymore either. I, I, was, I was really insane. And finally, the result of all that was I ended up leaving my wife, moving to California. I was living in New, uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia at the time. Moved to California for a new job offer. And I'd given up on that woman. She was in Florida. And I knew there was uh, plenty of single women in California. And I just couldn't handle, I could not stand my wife anymore. We were married for 28 years. And I grieved all, the whole time I was driving across the country, three days. I cried practically the whole time because I was really missing my children. I wasn't especially missing my wife, but I was really sorry to leave my children. Got to California. 
started dating again, even though I was still married, working on getting a divorce. And every woman I went out with, I would obsess over. They were all triggering me, and then I would obsess. Finally, after about a year of that, I got uh, less obsessive. That, that subsided a lot, and I ended up marrying a woman that I'd met about, about a year after I moved away from my first wife. We dated for a couple years, and then by that time I'd gotten divorced, so we got married. Six or seven years after that we were married, I started uh, getting obsessed again over another woman. And my second wife was a, had been a nurse all her life, and she had two previous husbands who were rageaholics. The first husband's father was a sexaholic, and that father molested all four of her children from almost the minute they were born until they were in early teens. This, uh, this woman ended up, my second wife ended up getting divorced from her husband and charging that father of her husband with, uh, crim- with criminal sexual acts. And they had a trial, a jury trial, and the guy went in prison. He pled guilty to one of the uh, large number of charges. And he got out after, he was pretty old. He got out after about three years, and then he died shortly after that. So my wife was really sensitive about uh, what the vibes that a man gives off if he's, if he's uh, sexually uh, addicted or abnormal. Also, drinking. She recognized fairly quickly that I was drinking too much. So after about seven years, I, I had another business trip had dinner once again with an attractive woman who worked for the same company that I did. And we just talked and had ate sushi and had some wine and some sake, and then we went our separate ways. I went home. A week later, boom, something got triggered in my mind. I started remembering that dinner, and I would remember all the looks, the little expressions on her face when she smiled, certain words she said, her voice, and the more of that I remembered, the more I became obsessed with her, with wanting to see her again, and with not wanting to be with my second wife anymore. Finally, after a couple of months of that, I had gotten so much worse and was, was uh, surfing the Internet looking for a married couple that was looking for somebody else to have threesomes in, in the Tennessee area here around, uh, around Nashville. And my wife discovered my internet activity. And so finally everything came to a head one, one uh, time that we had a Cinco de Mayo party at our home. And I got so drunk, I became Stinko de Mayo, uh, <laughs> Drunko de Mayo. And that, that was the weekend that she found my internet activity. So on Monday, she sat me down and talked to me for about an hour or maybe almost two hours. And she she said, do you want to stay married to me? She started out very kind. The whole time she talked to me, she never raised her voice, never had any anger in her voice. She was feeling me out. And I said, I don't know if I want to stay married to you. I don't really don't know. And then she, every now and then she would say, well, I think, I think there's more going on here. And she kept uh, discussing things. And then, and then, she, t- then she quoted from my Internet profile about things that I was looking for, looking forward to doing with a married couple. 
That's when I knew I was in, I was really in deep trouble. Uh, never before in my life had I felt uh, the way I did then. I began admitting to myself, yes, I have a problem. And the more things she, she brought out, the more I would admit, not, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I didn't do that, uh, yeah, I've drank too much. Uh-huh. She ended up telling me, she thought I was an alcoholic. I needed to start going to AA. She thought I was a sexaholic. Needed to start going to SA. I needed to see a therapist to get counseling. I needed to see a psychiatrist to get a med, a prescribed medication, to help me with my mental illness. <clears throat> and maybe I needed to be put into a clinic and uh, hospitalized for a while. And everything was fine until she said that last one. I'd seen shrinks before and this and that, and, and uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be in a clinic. But I decided I was going to do everything she said. I remembered the first time I'd gotten obsessed, and that cost me the first marriage. And I didn't want to do that again. And it began to dawn on me. Something is wrong with me because when that first time happened, I thought, well, I'm normal. Everybody else is screwed up. Uh, I'm nothing wrong with me. And I didn't realize that when I was driving across the country crying for three days that I was in clinical depression and a lot of other things going on in my head, um, chemical imbalance, whatever. And so I remembered, yeah, I did that once before. Now, why am I doing it again? Maybe there is something wrong with me. And then I thought the next progression or what what comes after that. If I successfully leave my second wife, this this woman I'm obsessing over now lives a thousand miles away. She's happily married. She won't want to leave her husband. What am I going to do? I'll just go off some some new place and I'll find a new main squeeze. And I'll obsess over her, and we'll get together, and everything will be happy for maybe two months, six months, a year. And then I'll get obsessed over yet a fourth one, and I'll dump the third woman, my my third main squeeze. I don't want to keep devastating women. I realized I am a serial wife devastator, and I think it's time to retire from that activity. I really don't want to cause all this pain to anyone else whom I profess to love uh, and who loves me. So that's when I started going to AA meetings, SA meetings. Uh, I called a therapist, got an appointment, started going to a counselor and called a psychiatrist, got an appointment to come uh, see him and didn't have to do anything about the clinic. So anyway, uh, after, after I'd been in both AA and SA for a while. I started reading the, the big book and learning about the steps and so on. I had a, a sponsor in SA, and he worked me, he got me through the first step. But before I did that, I'd already made a list of all kinds of things I'd done just to t- tell my counselor, my therapist, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste any of his time or my time. I wanted to get right into what was what was going on in my head. What's wrong with me? And I was, I was, e- I easily admitted everything that he wanted to know. Everything he asked, uh, true, no, I didn't do that. Yes, I did that. Blah blah blah. And then I got my first step with my sponsor in SA, and he said, 
write a list of all the ways you, different ways you've acted out. Oh, <laughs> I've already done that. That's not, that's not going to be a big problem. And then I went back and I started adding more to it. Uh, done a lot of crazy things. Twice in my life I was on a trip staying in a hotel in another city, and I was very wasted, very, very drunk. And around 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., I took off all my clothes and grabbed my hotel room key and left my room and wandered around the halls up and down the stairs. I did not get on the elevator. I knew that was not a good idea. Uh, hoping that I would see some woman and I could lust after her and masturbate, or maybe she would even see me and want to come to my room. <laughs> I thought that. It's possible it could happen. Maybe one out of every 85 trillion times I, I do this. <laughs> That's more than zero. It could happen. And so that was the way I thought back then. Even if it's only one out of 85 trillion, it's worth the risk. Well, after I got sober alcoholically and sexually, now I, when I get triggered, I, first of all, I don't have that kind of trigger anymore, but if I were, I would now calculate the same odds and I would come to a very different conclusion. One out of 85 trillion is not enough <laughs> for the risk. So, but when I was writing down this first step, all these things I had done, a lot of them I noticed were associated with being very drunk. And I saw a pattern. I had about 30 or 35 different things on this list, and maybe 10 of them, 10 or 15 of them, had to do with, with alcohol. So that's when I knew for sure I need to stop drinking. I had already stopped drinking, but I was not really convinced that I needed to. And uh, now the, the hard part, though, was to stop fantasizing and to stop masturbating. Well, I got, finally got to that point after about a month, being in SA for about a month. So the last time I masturbated, I didn't really masturbate. It was what I would call a wet dream. But I was concerned. I talked about it with my sponsor. How, how, uh, what, what percentage of fully awake do I have to be when I have the wet dream and it, and it becomes acting out? I was half asleep, half awake, I was lying on my stomach, on my belly, thinking lustful thoughts, and I was, I was awake enough that I could have rolled over and gotten out of bed, but I didn't. So he said, well, reset your sobriety date to, to today. So that was somewhere around June the 19th of 2009. And I have not masturbated since then. I don't, I don't remember even wanting to. But I get triggered. I get triggered every day several times, many times. So then I went on to the second step, which is higher power. And I learned that a higher power does not have to be just God. A higher power is anything that helps me do what I cannot do for myself. And I have a list of, uh, let's see, ten at least 10 higher powers I have identified since I started getting sober. Number one, this, these are in chronological sequence. My wife was a higher power. She talked to me one night. She did not want to divorce me. She loved me. She wanted to stay with me. She did not want me to stay with her in my 
the condition that I was in then. She wanted to help me. Nurses always want to help someone else. And she's a nurse. She has nursing in her DNA. She wants to help everybody, especially her husband. So she was my first higher power. And then I started going to AA meetings, and I was learning things there, uh, speaking uh, occasionally, sharing things. So that was a higher power. AA step study meetings one, one night a week. Learned a lot more about uh, the, the 12 steps in detail. Started going to SA meetings, group. Uh, it's a, it's a not very highly organized group therapy. Everybody gets to share. And when I hear other people talking about the same things that have been bothering me all my life, it gives me more strength to say the same things about myself. Number five, I got an essay sponsor. He told me to call him every day, so I started calling him every day. And he didn't need to talk to me very long. Have you acted out today? No. Have you acted out since yesterday? No. Uh, Okay, call me again tomorrow. (laughs) That's the way most of the calls went. I started reading the S.A. White Book and learning a lot of things about lust that I didn't know already. I started going to that therapist once a week, and that lasted for uh, maybe half a year. And then he said, maybe you'd only need to see me every other week. And that lasted a while. And then he said, how about every third, third week? Okay, and then once a month. And then after two years, he said, uh, you probably won't keep getting any more out of these sessions and I don't think there's anything else I can help you with so if you want uh, you might consider stop coming to see me once a month and I thought wow that's, that's pretty good I'm, I'm getting better with my sobriety and my uh, being, being able to control my lust that used to happen all the time whenever I would be triggered the eighth one eighth uh, higher power was the psychiatrist I went to see him I told him all the same things how I'd acted out uh, for years and years summarized it fairly quickly and um, he pre- prescribed that I should start taking 20 milligrams of Prozac every day he thought that I had uh, my, my it's not manic depressive where your highs are way up here and your lows are way down here. It's, it's more in the middle, but I, have a, I do have a fairly wide swing of emotions. And Prozac, one of the uh, results of that is it will narrow the range that my moods swing in. Manic depressives have to do something similar, but they have a much wider range that they have to narrow down. So I started taking 20 milligrams of Prozac and nothing changed. After a month, he wanted me to see me again. I went back. And I said, I'm still obsessing over that woman a thousand miles away. Okay, uh, I think we need to double the dose. All right, now 40 milligrams of Prozac every day. A month later, I was still obsessing, but it was a little bit less uh, intensive. And what I would do in these obsession sessions, I would be sitting at my desk during the day with my computer right here, and all of a sudden I would remember eating dinner with that woman several months earlier and sitting across the table from her, watching her eyes, watching she, and so on. And I, after... Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
I would remember all the little expressions on her face and the words that she said and specific things she said that she talked about. And I was convinced that she had, she was attracted to me. And that's what, that's probably what set me off. I could sense that somehow. And then I finally sent her an email and I said, I think you were attracted to me at that dinner we had. Now I'm hopelessly in love with you. I didn't know I was obsessing. I thought I was really in love with her. And uh, she wrote me back and said, well, I think it was all my fault. I was attracted to you. I wanted to get to know you better. Uh, I even admit I flirted with you. How's that for, for honesty? <laughs> well, that's, but there's no way I'm going to leave my husband. Uh, you certainly are an honest woman, but <laughs> maybe, maybe you should flirt with other men less often <laughs> that was one of my conclusions so I knew nothing was going to happen with her and uh, I kept obsessing about her I would sit there at work and all of a sudden I would remember something that she said during the dinner and then the whole dinner would start replaying in my memory this is what we now call euphoric recall because it was so pleasurable sitting there watching her talk to me and smile at me and uh, we talked about a lot of things we didn't talk about computers <laughs> I mean we talked about people that we knew in the company so and so is a real asshole and so, <laughs> this other guy swapping jokes and okay telling about trips we'd been on and then I would start talking out loud to her as if she were right there in the room with me as if we were having dinner again she's sitting across my desk from me and I'm pretending. I'm fantasizing. I'm, I, was re, I would repeat some of the things I said to her, and then I would fantasize in my mind, now what if I'd said something different after she flirted with me? Who knows what would have happened, blah, blah, blah. And then pretty soon I was, I was talking out loud for three or four minutes, and then I would suddenly get terribly depressed because I would remember the reality is she lives a thousand miles away. She's happily married. I'm married. I don't want to devastate people any, any, women anymore, and this is not going to go anywhere. So then I would get very depressed, and I would start wanting to die. I did not want to commit suicide, but I was really hoping somebody would, would shoot me, and maybe I could hire a hitman, and uh, he would shoot me, at, and I wouldn't know it was going to happen. That way my wife could get the insurance, and I couldn't commit suicide because then she wouldn't get the insurance. Uh, or maybe I could be in a accident, a car accident, and get killed that way, or walking down the sidewalk, something heavy falls off the top of the building and kills me instantly. I really did want to die, but I didn't want to be actively involved in my own death. And uh, so after two months, I was still thinking these things. And then after the third month on Prozac, I went back to the um, psychiatrist and I said, I have stopped obsessing. I've stopped getting into that pattern of thinking. First, I remember something about the dinner. Now, I call this phase phase one. I remember something euphoric about the dinner. I dwell on that, and that gets out of control. And then I move into phase two, where I'm talking out loud to her as if she's right there in the same room with me, really talking to myself. And then the third phase is where I get depressed because I know the reality is... Uh, it ain't going to work. And I also began experimenting with this. I began thinking, as soon as I start 
remembering the dinner and dwelling on that, I know automatically I will go to the next phase where I start talking out loud. And then the third phase will automatically follow the second one. So maybe what I should do is when I get to the second phase, after I've been talking out loud for a minute, is stop talking out loud and do something else with my brain. Look, Get back to my job or something like that. And I did that for a while, and then I realized I'm not getting depressed and death-wishing anymore. And then I said, now I'm going to take it one further step. As soon as I realize that I'm remembering and dwelling on that dinner together, I will stop that brain activity, stop thinking, concentrating on that, and then I won't move into the second step where I talk out loud. We'll see if that works. And sure enough, that started working. And then, then I got to where when I start thinking about that dinner, I immediately stop thinking about the dinner. I force myself, think of something else, and then I don't dwell on the dinner. And so finally, after three months in, in uh, recovery and two months on the higher dosage of Prozac, I stopped obsessing over this woman totally. And I thought that was really great. And then I kept going to meetings. I went to AA for about one and a half years, and then I realized that alcohol was not really my main core issue, that sex lust was, and that I had never really gotten chemically addicted to alcohol. I stopped going to AA meetings, but I kept going to SA meetings and reading, reading the SA literature, uh, sponsor and, all, and the uh, steps and so on. Then one day I heard on the radio an interview with a certain uh, female psychiatrist and brain researcher who had written two books. One is called The Female Brain, because she's a female. She wrote that one first. <laughs> and the other one was The Male Brain, and she talks about brain chemistry. And uh, there was enough in this radio interview that I decided I want to read both of those books. So I got them. I put them in my uh, Barnes & Noble notebook, and I began reading them. And she was talking a lot about hormones and what happens in the brain, how, how uh, sensory signals come in to our five senses, and then they get up into the brain, and the brain processes them. And now I'm going to go to the, black, the, the white blackboard. <clears throat> this will be the only time that you need to turn around. I've drawn very rough... Uh, stick figures here. <laughs> we have five physical senses. Our eye gives us vis visible, optical, sensory input. Our ears pick up sound waves converted into electrochemical signals. Our nose picks up uh, smells, converts those into electrochemical signals that go down into the brain. The tongue and the saliva glands and uh, inside the mouth picks up taste sensations, converts all of those into electrochemical impulses, go into the brain, and our skin, all over our skin, is the sense of touch. So those are our five physical senses. Now here's, here's the way a neuron in the brain works as compared to a simple switch. This is a light switch on the wall. It has two positions, on and off. Right now, it's in the off position. You can move it up or down. If you move it down, you'll complete an electrical circuit. And then the electricity will flow through 
the output wire and we'll have yes. But when I pull the switch back up, we'll have no. There is no output current. There's nothing coming out of this decision-making mechanism, if you want to call it that. But our nerve cells are very different and far more complicated. Here's, here's a gross uh, picture of a neuron in the brain. How many do we have? We have 100 billion nerve cells, neurons, in our brains. Each of them can, can receive inputs from a lot of other neurons in the brain. And each of them can also send signals out to a lot of other nerves. It's not just one input, one output. There's multiple inputs and multiple outputs. So the way these things can interconnect is, is an infinitely astronomical number of combinations. Now, to make it even more complicated is inside the neuron, the neuron is a living cell. It has a nucleus, like all the other cells in our body, and there's a lot of chemical act activity going on in there all the time. I have to re repair this letter R here. Okay. Hormones come in from all around the body and they, they change the behavior of the neuron. They can, maybe, maybe one millisecond, we've got these two sending in a pulse and one pulse coming out here. Uh, a third pulse comes in because of some hormone that did something over here to the left, and it changes the way this neuron reacts to those first two inputs, and now we no longer get an output down there, we get an output down somewhere else. And that's as technical as this stuff's going to get. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, dwell on the, the techni technical stuff. But keep, keep all that in mind as I talk about hormones and neurons. Okay. I looked up neuron, um, no, I looked up hormone on Wikipedia. There are at least 70 different hormones that scientists have identified. They're all in our body. They get created in a gland. We have a lot of different glands. Uh, and then the gland puts a little bit of this hormone, which is a chemical, a complex chemical compound, goes into the bloodstream, and then the bloodstream takes it all through the body, and that hormone will affect the behavior of some part of the body somewhere else. Or it might even come back and affect the same gland in which it was produced. We have about at least 70 different hormones. Inside the brain, we have at least 13 that have been identified by brain researchers. Here, here's the last real technical thing. I'm going to read a list of these 13 that I found. Some of them you will have heard of. And I put them in alphabetic order. I saved the best for, for the last. <laughs> Cortisol. I don't know what, I don't remember what that does. Uh, oh, allopregnanol. Pregna, allopregnanone. I don't know. Androstenedione. I don't know. Cortisol. DHEA. Here's one I remember. Dopamine. Dopamine is created by by a gland inside the brain. There are three glands that are inside the brain itself. Dopamine is one that is created right there inside the brain. It doesn't go into the bloodstream and then back into the brain. No, that would take too long. It goes directly into the brain. And dopamine is what we use uh, when we sense the pleasure of seeking some goal. 
we see an attractive woman. Now the goal is to get to know her better and seduce her or have sex with her or spend time with her. That's the goal. Or maybe the goal is to get a raise on the job. Uh, whatever your goal is, as you are seeking the goal and re- realize you're taking steps and getting closer and closer to the goal, more dopamine is released. Dopamine in the brain it has the same effect on the brain as cocaine. It gives you a serious high, and it's created right inside our brains. It's, we don't have to ingest cocaine or something else from outside. We can have dopamine, uh, a dopamine-induced high, if we do the right kinds of activities. Okay, uh, the next one is good, endorphin. That is another one that's created by a gland inside the brain. And endorphin is something that, we, that causes our brain to perceive pleasure after we have gotten the goal, after we've done something. Uh, dopamine is during the process of seeking the goal, and endorphin is the end result. Now, what, what are some of the activities that we can do that, that uh, create endorphin out of this gland? Uh, prolonged exercise. This is where people get the runners high. Eating chocolate will, will give you an endorphin rush. Eating hot, spicy things. I really love hot peppers. I love I get an endorphin rush. It burns the tongue, but it feels good <laughs> later. Uh, sex will cause a big endorphin rush. Now, while you're doing the preparatory things before before the orgasm, you will be experiencing dopamine, dopamine rush. But once you have that orgasm, then you get the endorphin rush. Different hormones are involved, but they both feel really good. Now, here's one. Estrogen. Well, that's, that's our enemy, right? That's what makes women so, so uh, do so many weird and stupid things. <laughs> Silly things like... Like, ignore me. She doesn't, want, she doesn't want to get to know me any better. She told me to stop trying to kiss her. <laughs> uh, estrogen. But it also is what makes them look attractive. And there's a lot of pluses and minuses from these things. And all these, and all these hormones have to be in a, within a certain balance, within a certain range. Um, if one of them gets out of balance, then you may have one of these neurons sending a signal to the wrong place. Here's, a, here's a, a long name, Mullerian inhibiting substance. I don't know what it is. Oxytocin, progesterone, prolactin. Uh, here, here's everybody's favorite, testosterone. That's a hormone. And that causes uh, us to act like men. And the la- I'll give details in a, in a minute. Vasopressin, those are the 13. The instant that a Sperm breaks through the outer shell of an ovum inside a female, gets inside that outer skin. Two things happen. One is the ovum, up until that instant, has been receptive for any one of the hundreds of thousands of sperms. Doesn't care. Whichever one gets to it first wins, and then the ovum instantly changes some chemistry inside the ovum and no other sperm can get through that outer wall. Now the sperm is inside, so here's the, here's the lucky guy. And when that sperm, uh, I guess he goes into the nucleus, or I don't, I don't remember all these details, but now we have a fertilized ovum. 
and at the instant of conception, this uh, fertilized ovum is going to be either a male or a female. It's a yes or a no in almost all <laughs> modern, modern times. No, we have to allow for some other, for some other choices, but uh, male or female. And if, it, if it's male, there's certain chromosomes that aren't present if it's a female. And so the presence of these extra chromosomes causes this ovum to develop into a male baby. If, that, uh, if, it's, if it has uh, the, the Y, whatever the other chromosome is, the baby will expand and develop into a female baby. And at a certain stage in the development inside the womb, maybe two or three months, when the brain starts being developed in this baby, these extra chromosomes start creating testosterone if it's a male or estrogen if it's a female. And inside the brain, the tiny little brain inside this, uh, what's now just an embryo, from that moment on, that brain, if it's a male brain, <laughs> poor guy, his brain is floating in a sea of testosterone. <laughs> He can't help it. And if it's a female, the brain is going to be immersed in a, in a big soup of estrogen, which cause a lot of things to develop differently uh, over the time that it's throughout the whole life. So then we get born and we grow up. And uh, now I'm going to talk about one hormone in particular, <clears throat> which was in this book, these two books that I read. When a man and a woman are married, let's say, and, they, and the woman's pregnant and they're sleeping in the same bed at night, they're two or three feet apart, they're both asleep. <clears throat> After two or three months of pregnancy, the woman's body, out of her sweat glands, starts emitting a pheromone, which is an airborne hormone, and it floats through the air. A lot of them float through the air. Some of these land inside the nose of the sleeping husband and they impinge on the little nerve cells inside the nostril and they create a little chemical reaction and certain nerves are triggered to produce certain uh, resulting hormones which go up into the, the sleeping man's brain and start changing his brain chemistry. They, they start sh uh, inhibiting slightly the amount, of the, the percentage of, of testosterone that he produces or the amount every day. It starts lowering his testosterone level a little bit each day. And a very interesting net result of this is after six, seven more months, when the baby's born, this man is much less prone to making rash decisions, which you would do if you had, if you had lots of testosterone. He's able to wake up more easily in the middle of the night when he hears a noise and so that helps his wife. She's not the only one that has to get up at 3 a.m. and feed the baby. He has more patience and so on. That, that pheromone that drifted across the bed and went in that guy's nose starts the process of turning him into a better daddy. <laughs> and I read that sentence in that book, and that just blew me away. Ah, I fell down on my back. Ah, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether God designed that or whether it's blind evolution, but uh, it's so amazing. 
maybe God designed evolution to produce everything that we that we see, and I don't know the God or evolution or creation. I don't know about. It. I I finally decided I can't know for sure, so I don't. I gave up trying to trying to uh, know for sure. I accept things the way they are, I, as we say in the uh, our fatalistic uh, reading. I accept life on life's terms. Part of life is to learn how life works, and that's a pheromone floating through, landing in there. That's life. Don't know why we have it. We have it. So now we see what, what happens with these hormones and how they have to be in a certain balance. Now I'm going to take a trip to a gas station because I need to refuel my tank. So I get out of my car, walk back to the tank, open the the little cap, take the lid off the tank, get the hose, the hose, put it in there, and put my credit card in, punch a few numbers. Then I pull the handle to start the gas flowing into the gas, uh, gas tank. Within about a half a second, I start smelling gasoline vapor. Wow, everybody's done that, right? You know, you understand that. And so then I don't really care about the gasoline vapor. I've smelled it thousands of times. I'm, now I'm just kind of gazing, watching the numbers spin around, uh, not um, absent-mindedly gazing there. And I'm not aware of it, but after a second or two, I can no longer smell the gasoline. I'm physically incapable of smelling the gasoline, even though the gasoline vapor is still coming out of the, out of the end of that... Uh, uh, pump, pump handle, uh, the, the tube, and flowing around my air, my head, the air around my head is loaded with gasoline molecules. And they're impinging, they're still impinging on the inside of my nose, but I'm no longer aware that I'm standing in the middle of all this gasoline. How did that happen? Ah, hormones, brain chemistry. The sensory signal goes up into the brain from the, from the nose, and every, everything that comes in from any one of these five senses has to be processed in a certain sequence. The first thing that we have to do, oh yeah, the one thing, look, look over there again. Uh, right directly under brain is the word lower. This is what some researchers call the lower brain, others call it the primitive brain or the reptilian brain. This is where... Uh, our primal urges are processed. Science, brain researchers believe this to be true. The things that we consider most important that have to be reacted to immediately that might, that might involve conscious thought, they, they are things like fear, danger, hunger, sex. You can't get more primal than those. Okay, so... The brain, the, the, the part where the, the brain, where the, the sense uh, impulse first comes in from the nose, sends it down into the lower brain to check it out against these four main, uh, very important things. <clears throat> Is this something I need to fear, this, this gasoline vapor? No, I've, I've smelled it thousands of times before. It's okay. Uh, is it something I can eat? No. Am I hungry? No, I'm not interested in that. Is it something I can have sex with? <laughs> No, I don't want to have sex with gasoline vapor. So the result goes back up to the other part of the brain. No, it's not, it's not a primal problem. Nothing we need to run away from. So then 
Meanwhile, I'm still smelling all these gas molecules. They're still impinging on my nostrils, nerve cells. What is it that makes me stop being aware? Every time, one, every time a, a, a molecule hits one of these nerves, there's another signal going up. And they keep going down to the lower brain, no problem, no problem, no problem, okay, okay, okay. After a large number of these things happen, and the result never changes, the neuron, so one, of, in one, one of the neurons in the path, I think maybe is, is counting up the hits where nothing, nothing bad happened. So after a certain threshold, a new, some neuron somewhere starts sending a signal up into the conscious mind where, where we are aware that we're smelling gasoline, sends a signal starting to shut down to inhibit the ability of the conscious mind to, to notice that there's gasoline. And that is the critical thing. I've gotten aware here comes my consciousness level, aware of the gasoline, and here comes the shutdown signal. Gets back down to normal. Normal is I don't notice anything unless it's out of the ordinary. Right now, gasoline vapor is the new ordinary, so I don't notice the gasoline vapor. So I'm still standing there watching the numbers spin around. Now all of a sudden, my right eye picks up some movement out here. My peripheral vision tells me something's moving. Hmm, now I'm a sexaholic and I know it, so I'm going to stare at these numbers spinning around. I'm not going to turn my head to see what it is. It might be a woman. <laughs> Whatever it is goes into my lower brain. Is this, is this dangerous? We don't know yet. We need more input. Is it something we can eat? Don't know yet. Don't know what it is. Is it something we can have sex with? Don't know yet. Not enough information. Finally, it moves around enough to where I can get a much better idea of what this is. Now I'm pretty sure it's an adult human walking through the gas station. I'm still staring at this dial, <laughs> white knuckling. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh-oh, my ear. My ear is now getting some sensory input. I hear high heel shoes clicking on <laughs> the ground. <laughs> oh, men don't wear high heel shoes that click. It's almost certainly a woman. So now we go down into the lower brain when I hear that high heel shoe. No, don't fear it. It's not something I can eat. It might be something I can have sex with. So now, now I get a trigger that goes up to the conscious part of my brain where I, I am aware. I'm thinking I'm aware of the possibility. Yes, it's probably a woman. Now what do I do? Well... I'll stare at the dial. Or I could wait till she walks farther around, then I'll be absolutely sure she's a woman, but I'm still staring at the dial, and I'll just kind of, I'm, she's now in the background gazing. No, I look quick. <laughs> yes, it's a woman. Signal goes down, lower brain. Really attractive woman. Seriously attractive woman. Uh, okay, now I'm fighting. What's, what has happened now is I have been triggered. Same, oh yeah, one more little thing. Notice over here this memory. Memory is where the brain stores memories of everything we do, but it also has a, an arrow coming out of the top. The memory is also capable of sending a pulse into the brain of, of a memory. It's not one of the five physical senses, but, but our brain can get triggered by this 
sensation coming from our own memory. And that also has to be processed. That goes down into the lower brain. Oh, I'm remembering having dinner with that woman. Oh, I'm remembering that this woman is attractive. Uh, and thousands of times before, I have always stared compulsively at an attractive woman. So now I have this really strong urge. My neurons want to continue going through the same pathway that they did all those thousands of times that I stared compulsively. But now I have to exercise conscious thought and make a decision not to stare compulsively or to look, yes, yes, it is an attractive woman, and then I can remember the reality of what happens. Uh, if, I, if I stare, I'll get out of control. My life will be unmanageable. I'll get divorced, blah, blah, blah. I'll ruin her life. Maybe she's married. I'll devastate her husband, blah, blah, blah. Not a good idea. Back to the little dial with, with the numbers. So I'm able to control my triggering. I'm able to shut down think, uh, thinking more and more about the trigger. And how does that happen? Because I take 40 milligrams of Prozac every day, it has altered my brain chemistry. And that is one, that's another one of my... Uh, in fact, that's the ninth, that's my ninth higher power, is my daily dose of Prozac. So here's what happens. Our desire is down low, down low, low level. No desire because everything's normal. Gasoline is now normal. All of a sudden, I get triggered. Female. Another nerve cell wants, because I see the, the woman multiple times, Another nerve cell wants to send an inhibiting pulse up there because it knows it's part of the memory that, that it's not going to do any good to, to stare at that woman. But because my brain chemistry was messed up before I started doing Prozac and it got worse and worse throughout my whole life, this other signal can't make it up there. Something's blocking this nerve weight neuron from sending the signal that would inhibit the repetitive process of, of uh, infinite uh, self-accelerating positive feedback. I just want to keep staring because it feels so good. And now uh, what will happen is the inhibitor will start to rise, and then the, the, this is a very gross uh, uh, analogy. Then the desire level goes way back down, and that's what the Prozac does for me, and that's what uh, that's the way my brain should work if it if it were normal. And that's uh, when I understand that it helps it helps me a whole lot to understand that that's what my brain is doing. That's why I get triggered. I cannot help getting triggered as soon as I hear the clicking of the heels or I see the motion and I, out of the corner of my eyes there's a woman. I'm instantly triggered. And that happened in a fifth of a second. The ear and the eye sent signals. Signals got processed. Yeah, it's something you can have sex with. Boom. Uh, wake up the conscious mind. In, send an interrupt. I'm now triggered. That takes a fifth of a second, and it's taken me at least ten minutes to explain how that happens. And we, you can't stop that one-fifth of a second. That's why a year ago uh, at our conference, Harvey said... The first look is on God. The first look takes a fifth of a second. And after that, you're either triggered or you're not. 
If you're not triggered, no problem. If you are triggered, you might want to take a second look. And that second look is not on God. That's on me. That's something I have to choose to do or not to do. So my daily regimen, what do I do to stay sober every day for the last six and a half years? I take my Prozac, and I did not intend this to be a one-hour-long commercial for Prozac. Uh, I'm giving you my life story, my higher powers, what I do to maintain my sobriety, and one size does not fit all. If, you, if anybody is thinking that you might want to check into some, some uh, drug like that, you have to see a psychiatrist. You should also talk to your sponsor. Don't just get fired up by what I said. Do some research and think about it. But I take my pill every morning. I work eight hours a day on software. It keeps my brain actively involved and challenged to solve problems. With, with Oh, this, this, this instruction right here, that's the one that broke. Why did that instruction break? I look at all the results of uh, what's in storage, and there's no reason why that instruction should have done what it did. So maybe I need to go back a few instructions and look at everything that happened maybe for the last 10 instructions before that, and maybe something got happened up here that influenced that down. And that's what I have to do during the day, do things like that. I watch the evening news on television with my wife. Uh, she, she likes to have me in the room. We have, we have quality time watching TV while she's reading her smartphone <laughs> and I'm reading a book. She likes to have the news on. So I sit in there. I like to watch the news and keep up with the news. But there's a lot of triggers on the news. They have the most beautiful women in the world that read the news in that television studio and also that, that read the uh, weather reports to you. So I have to monitor what I'm doing uh, while I'm watching the news. I also read books when after the news is over. My wife likes to watch Nancy Grace, and I prefer to call it Nancy Disgrace. Uh, she likes that kind of stuff. I'm in the same room with her. I don't especially like it. Uh, so I start reading a book. Uh, I read articles that I printed off of Wikipedia, a lot of history. I like to study foreign languages. I've been... I've been um, Lifelong uh, knowledge junkie. I have a lot of intellectual curiosity. I want to learn a lot more. I want to learn everything I can. Right now, I've been, I've been concentrating on Russian for the last few years. And I have a four-year-old granddaughter who speaks English. I'm sure she speaks English much better at four than I can speak Russian. <laughs> After studying it off and on for 60 years... <laughs> mostly off. So it's fun. To me, it's fun. It's what I like to do. I try not to give my brain very much time at all to fantasize. I don't want my brain to be idle. I don't like it when I start daydreaming. That's not good. I want something to read. If I'm going somewhere that I know I'm going to have to sit in a chair and wait for a while, maybe I go to a doctor, a dentist or something, I take a book with me to read. I don't want to read what's in that dentist's office because there's a lot of things in there I really don't want, want to read and might trigger me and I'm not interested in it. And I'm halfway through this book right now, so I want to keep reading the book I've been reading for two weeks. So I don't want to have my brain get lost in fantasy land. Now, back to fatalism. One of the side effects of Prozac is 
that it might lower your libido. It, something has lowered my libido. I've been on Prozac for six years. I have very little libido anymore. It doesn't mean I don't get triggered. I don't want to have sex with this amazingly beautiful woman sitting there or in her uh, studio chair reading the news, but I sure would like to stare at her for a while. I'd like to have dinner with her, too. Uh, in fact, I'm even in love with that woman who goes bowling and has the overactive bladder. <laughs> have you ever seen that commercial? <laughs> she is so hot. <laughs> well, I don't want to have sex with her, not consciously. I would like to talk with her and smell her perfume <laughs> and hear, hear her nice, kind voice, nice, sweet-sounding voice, and uh, offer her some wine and do all these romantic things, but definitely not consciously into sex. But I can't turn that off. As soon as I see that commercial, I instantly go there. Trigger. So then I have to do something else. I get triggered all the time, even though I don't have much libido. Also, I don't have much passion for anything. I used to be seriously fired up and get very angry and in a rage about a lot of things, like world politics, uh, presidential campaigns. I, I don't care about the global cooling or the global warming, whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And uh, so I'm fatalistic. And there are certain things I can change. And one of those is to change my brain chemistry a little bit and can make my life happier and can stay sober every day by monitoring my thoughts. And take, I take that med so that I have a fighting chance to control my thoughts. I get that... It reduces or uh, it allows the inhibiting signal to get up there and then bring down the, uh, the desire uh, loop. So that's what I do. And when you're, when you're like that, life is kind of boring. And I've decided that's okay because boring is much better than out of control. <laughs> so I'll stop and entertain some questions or comments. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot one cool thing I was going to say. I was in this church for 30 years, and after a while I realized I had a problem with masturbating and fantasizing, fantasizing and so on. So I started taking the, the approved church process to deal with that. I'd pray, Bible study, fast, uh, pray some more, fast some more, study the Bible some more. I did that for 30 years, and nothing happened. And then recently I read a quote from a famous American slave who became free after about, when he was about 20 years old, and then Frederick Douglass. He, he ran away from the plantation where he was born. He went north. He became very well educated. He wrote a lot of books. He became a much sought-after orator against slavery, and in his autobiographical book, he was talking about his early life. He said, I prayed every day when he was a slave. And God never heard me until I began praying with my legs. <laughs> That's when he decided he needed to run away. <laughs> so I was the same way. I thought I prayed every day for 30 years that, I, that God would relieve me from the slavery of my own lust. And God never heard me. My prayer was never answered. Nothing ever happened to change my sex, uh, sexual slavery 
until I got into recovery, until I started going through this series of higher powers, and uh, most especially got my my uh, brain chemistry back to somewhat resembling normality. So now I'm totally done. So any comments, questions? Yeah, I'll chime in, one sexy singer to another. Uh, we all have variations in our moods and. I'm moving closer so I, oh, okay. the mic can you pick know, up your so, question. You know, do we, I guess we should consult with a psychiatrist as to what is normal or healthy, I guess, before we start taking Prozac or some other. That's right. There are, there are a lot of different moods we can be in, and not all of them have anything to do with sex. This morning I was out walking my dog in my backyard, and uh, I started remembering my previous dog who died about one and a half years ago. And I didn't start talking out loud, but I did, I did allow myself to remember vividly many of the things that she did on the last day she was alive. She had never done them before. And one thing was we were out, just, it was the last day she was alive. She'd stopped eating a few days before, and I had her on a leash. We walked out to the, to the street and stopped there at the edge of the yard. Here's the street. And all of a sudden, across the street, there was another person with a dog. And for the first time in that, my dog's life, she did not pull on the leash. She did not <clears throat> uh, start barking, and she had congestive heart failure, which meant the, the bottom line was she, it was she struggled for every breath for five days before we had her euthanized. So I'm standing there wondering, well, when is she going to tug on the leash? And she's not. And then, and then she, was, she turned her head and looked around at me and caught my eye and then turned her head back to the front. And this, this thought, this really weird thought, flashed through my mind. She just told me what was in her mind. In her, she, she had this, I don't know whether this is true, but I anthropomorphized my dog into thinking like humans. And I thought, the way I felt that she just looked at me was she was telling me, Daddy, I don't want to run across the street. I don't want to chase that dog. I can't. It's, it's hard enough for me to breathe. I just don't want to chase other dogs anymore. And then I put her in the car, take her to the vet. And for the first time in her life, she jumped up into the back seat. She'd never done that before. I'd always, this is a bulldog. They, their joints are not really built for jumping. <laughs> I had to pick up her front end and put her front paws on the back seat and then pick up her back end, shove her into the car. First time in her life, I opened the car door and she jumped up into the back seat and I thought, flashed through my mind. She's telling me, Daddy, let's go. Let's get this over with. And I, every time I remember that, those two thoughts, I start tearing up. I can't help it. And in fact, I got to where I was actively weeping this morning, remembering all these things about my... And I bonded with that dog really well because... For the last five years of her life, I was in recovery. And if I had not been in recovery, I would not have bonded with her. And so I remember that. I can remember that uh, maybe every three or four months. I think about that again, and I start tearing up. But I'm not doing something that's self-destructive. I'm not making my life out of control when I remember this. I'm not talking out loud about what I felt about that dog's death. I'm just remembering the memory and I'm replaying it. It's not a euphoric recall. It's a very sad recall. But it's an intensive memory, and it's not that put me in a different mood. 
So we have a lot of moods. Now, anger is a mood. And some people have a lot of anger, and they need to do something to control, to de- decrease their anger. Other people uh, have a, a, a less wide swing of anger and so on. So, uh, That's fine. Next question. You're reading their studies or reading these two books. Are there any other medical or medical conditions that are kind of close parallels to sexual addiction? or, or <clears throat> I don't remember reading anything in those two books that talked about sexual addiction, but she talks plenty about how testosterone will will make a man do certain things and make a man interested in a woman and will, will, will help him overcome his natural shyness. I want to go meet that woman. She's so hot, I can't help myself. I have to go introduce myself. Maybe she'll uh, ignore me, but who knows? It might work. And that's if you're single. Uh, if you're not single anymore, you need you need not to, should not be dwelling on thoughts like that. Now, if she comes over and introduces herself as part of her job or whatever, uh, that's fine. But uh, so it's, I don't remember much in in those books about sex addiction. There's a wealth of material on the internet. There's a lot of books out on neuro hormones and so on. But I mentioned those two because they're not written in a very technical way and she wrote it deliberately so that uh, just about anybody can understand it and she talks about all these these brain processes thinking going down to the lower brain and the, the four primal urges she talks about all that and she also says about it takes a fifth of a second as soon as I see a woman within one fifth of a second I've already rated her on a scale of zero to ten subconsciously and, and now the problem is when I, if she's way up there 9 or 10, uh, I might want to start dwelling on that consciously. And that's where we start getting into fantasy, and that's, uh, we need to learn how to deal with that and not let it get started. So certainly uh, I would recommend you see a psychiatrist. You may not, he may not want to uh, prescribe anything. I don't know. He'll ask you a, a, a series of pointed questions trying to get down to the core of your problem, your particular problem. And he's trained their professionals. They know what kind of questions to ask and how to read your responses and so on. And uh, maybe you don't. Maybe you do need something for, for moods. I'm not sick. <laughs> We're all sick. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Comments. Well, I hope I've been able to help you some today and uh, give you another tool to use in our struggle, our, our uh, struggle against our enemy. And what is the enemy? That my enemy is not that attractive woman. My enemy is not the way my, my brain is designed. My enemy is not my lust. My enemy is the imbalance in my hormonal System with about 70-odd different hormones in my body, at least 13 of which affect the way my brain works. Something is out of balance, and that's my enemy, and that's why I do the Prozac. It uh, shuts down that enemy, and it gives me a fighting chance to think about it and exercise conscious thought and choose not to continue being triggered to, to dwell on that triggering event, which I cannot stop. One-fifth of a second, I'm triggered. Now what do I do? I think about it. Can I think straight and rationally and soberly, or will I think drunkenly? And uh, so that's, that's one more tool in our bag of, t- bag of tools. Thank you, sir. So, that's it.
Okay.